Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. And I'm here today with Lincoln of Animoto. How are you doing today, Lincoln? I'm doing really well, Venkat. So could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, like you said, my name is Lincoln Ritter. Uh, I'm the director of engineering at Animoto, and uh, that's a company in New York City that helps anyone create uh, really beautiful videos. Most of my professional background is actually building web services, APIs, that kind of thing. Uh, I've been doing that for, I guess, close to about 10 years. Uh, before that, I was a, a graduate student in computer science and engineering, and I did mostly computer graphics, so I don't really know how I ended up being like a services guy, but that's what I do now. And I'm doing a lot more management stuff now as well. So, you know, director means different things at different places, but at Animoto, it means that I'm, I'm running a few teams and kind of generally help provide technical and personnel guidance throughout the engineering organization, um, kind of help fix problems or give my advice on, you know, selecting a new technology or tool or something like that or design, that sort of thing. Wow. So a wide range of things. It's, it's funny where we end up. Josh studied something completely different he studied economics and and philosophy and like look what he's doing now right yeah totally well I actually even before that I was a musician so it's really weird how I how I ended up where I am today <laughs> times are changing times are changing so it's really common advice these days to track everything that's what people say measure everything because you don't know what you're going to need I'm in the startup community personally, and I see loads of startups following just that. But what happens is the analytics data just kind of sits there. What can we do with this data? It's a tough question. Um, and I think that I have no doubt that in many, many situations that, you know, there's just a wealth of interesting, you know, trends or correlations or whatever buried in, in all the data that gets generated this, uh, both as the sort of operation proper of any any business but also sort of the ancillary data the like operational data you know all that kind of stuff you know i mean what you could potentially find by really looking at that data in depth i mean it's it's pretty broad right you could cluster user behavior you could segment users in different ways and look at their you know try to tease out like which behaviors or groups of users have different, you know, lifetime values or conversion behavior or whatever you could even find like operational improvements you know, look at request patterns, look at, you know, say like user asset reuse over their lifetime of, of a user and try to use that to op optimize things. Um, but I, I think the question always has to be, what's the return on investment, right? Like doing that sort of analysis is, is expensive. We're lucky enough that right now, like storage costs are really dropping. So it's sort of like, I think that's where the whole, uh, you know, why don't you track everything kind of advice comes from. But um, moving data around, getting it in the right format, all that stuff is still pretty hard. And I think that, you know, just sort of naively diving into, like, doing any analysis on it, there, it raises a lot of questions. Like, is the data correct? Has the way that you've been gathering that data changed over time such that the interpretation of that data might be subtly different from, you know, one period of time to another period of time? Is the format that the data isn't readily consumable, right? Do you have the infrastructure and expertise to process a large pile of data? I mean, it's really, it's not easy just because you can store everything. And I'm not saying you, you shouldn't, but I, I think it's worth thinking about 
a little bit upfront, like, well, what are you really trying to do? What's real? What do you really think that data is going to be useful for for your company? So, could you kind of walk us through how one might do that? Are there certain common things that will drive a company? Well, sure. I, I think. I mean, depending on the type of business that you're running, you know, there might be certain behaviors that are really important for establishing like the health of, you know, your user base in terms of like, are they doing the things that you want? Are they getting value from your product? And then, of course, like the grand experiment of any company is like, do those activities translate to like revenue uh, for you? So I think it's useful to sort of start there, you know, and that's that's how we started. We started with, well, we want to like measure money coming in the door and make sure that that looks right. And then we said, okay, well, like, how do we sort of back that out to like, you know, segment that out to look at different classes of users that we, we saw or thought were behaving a little bit differently. And then we say, go back farther and say, okay, those revenue numbers are sort of almost like trailing indicators, right? So what we actually want to know is, are they doing the things that we believe will give them the most value? And then if they, if they are doing those things, then does that translate into to, you know better subscription renewals or purchase behavior or things like that? And I think for us, we'd really tried to look at like what are the key you know behaviors that we want to get a handle on, and then just try to start instrumenting those or start doing more rigorous uh, kind of reporting on those things and measuring experiments based on the performance of those things. And that that sort of has, has driven our decisions about like how much to build out, how, what data to collect, and how long to keep it, and all that sort of stuff. So you're saying when you got started, you didn't do all of this? Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Quite frankly, we, we've, if you talked to me like a year ago, um, I would have said, you know, hey, we're just, well, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. But not long ago, we were pretty much just looking at, oh, well, how much money came in today? And that was mostly what we knew. And we did a little bit of abusing of like Google Analytics and things like that to try to understand how users were flowing through our, our product. That was it. And, and we, we noticed, you know, when we were trying to do various experiments, uh, you know, split testing, that kind of stuff, that it, it wasn't always, it felt like we weren't building up an intuition at all about like, well, if we wiggle this little thing over here, you know, how does the, the other side of the machine react? And so we wanted to start getting a deeper understanding of how us tweaking the user experience affected things like, you know, revenue and things like that. We just didn't have a great model of how the how the, all that stuff connected. So we had to start sort of going up the funnel a little bit. And that led us to realize, oh, well, we have this data, but we can't readily, we sort of can't join it. It's like lives in two databases, for example. So sort of simple, but I think relatively common problem. Uh, so we had to solve that problem. And then we were like, well, okay, now we've solved that problem. But so we can get a little bit more view of certain things. Now we're missing a different kind of data. So we want to add some technology, do some instrumentation such that we can start collecting that data and make sure that that is sitting alongside, you know, some of the other transactional data that we were having. So, but it was always, it's always been sort of built from like, okay, now what problem are we trying to solve? How do we get the next step? It wasn't, it was never like, we want to be a, you know, data-driven company. So let's, you know, build out, we, uh, that naturally means we have to build out a giant like Hadoop cluster and like do this, that, and the other thing. It's always been ship something, see what it gets us, try to like drive adoption of that sort of thing, of, of use of that, of that new piece, figure out where the shortfalls are, get feedback from our users, our internal users, and then do another iteration, take one more step. Okay, so so I understand. You're saying when you first started, you didn't have an in intuition of 
what changes were impacting your numbers. So maybe you tweak some things with your interface and the number might go up or down, but you're not aware of like what mechanisms in between like cause that change. Is, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it, you know, because we have a fairly complex product and I don't think you need to get that complex of a product to start saying, oh, well, like as somebody comes in from a, a search and lands on a landing page, how you message that user, you know, it may drive conversion in one way or the other, but it also may be that that changes the kind of user that goes through. So some messaging might resonate to some users who are more likely to be long-term users versus some that will be short-term users. So there's this very long and complex journey that the user is going to go through while using your product from discovering the product in the first place to like, you know, buying it, hopefully. And if you're running a relatively large team, trying to run a lot of experiments, things like that, you know, there's lots of moving parts. So it's worthwhile, like really trying to figure out like those in-between points that are really important. So I'd, I'd love to know how you went from just tracking a few things from your early days to becoming more data-driven and understanding the data. I guess my goal and the goal of, of Animoto at the outset of, of this sort of project where we we're sort of saying, hey, you know what? We think that there's, there's more to learn from our data, from our users. I think the goal there was really twofold. Partly, it was about being able to make better decisions. We didn't want to make things based on a pure hunch. We'd like to be able to back up our decisions and know that we're making the right decision. If we're going to change something very radical in our user experience, for example, we'd like to have a good sense before we, we do that broadly that it's going to work, that it's going to lead to results that we think will be favorable uh, in the long term. And, you know, it can be dangerous to do that sort of stuff. You know, we're a relatively established business at this point. In fact, today is our, our eighth birthday. And, you know, so that we have we have users that, that use the product, expect it to work a certain way. And, and we have revenue that comes in because of those users. And we, we really want to make sure that the experience stays good for them and still allows them to get what they need done, done. But at the same time, you know, we believe that there's a whole host of users. There's more users out there that have yet to benefit from our product and that ultimately will. And we need to make sure we're optimizing for them too. We want to make sure that we're driving towards a better solution all the time. So it can be a little bit scary to just say like, well, I have a hunch that this new direction for the, for the product or this tweak is the right way to go. We want to make sure that we back that up with data. You know, we want to be analytical about it. So it's all about like giving ourselves confidence that we're doing the right thing there and improving our ability to make good decisions in that area or in, in whatever area, product changes, you know, down to, you know, copy changes on, you know, an email. Let's say I'm a startup and I don't have anything implemented yet. All I'm doing is I'm tracking data. And like you said, it doesn't make sense, you know, like install Hadhoop and like set up all this infrastructure, like right off the front, especially when you have limited resources. How can I think about going from where I am to going one step, taking one step towards being more data-driven? And maybe you could talk a bit about how, how Animoto did that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it, this applies to sort of everything that you're going to do as a, as a startup. But I think the first, the, the most important piece of advice I could give is ship something. Pick a metric or, you know, a key report. And get that number in front of people, everybody who is going to be making decisions or, you know, as many people in your company or group that you can get it in front of people every day and make sure that the narrative behind that data or that number, it could be a single number, really, is clear. You know, people 
uh, need to know how that name number came to be and try to understand how different activities change it, right? And get people asking questions. If they're like, oh, well, what happens when this other thing happens? That's great. That means people are asking questions about that data. They're engaged with that data, right? If you can get people engaged with that data, you can start with one number and they'll ask for something else. And you're like, oh, you know what to do that? We need to take one step, you know, up the funnel or whatever it is and start gathering information, you know, in this other area, right? And how can you get people involved like that? Because I I've definitely I can speak from my experience. Um, when you put something like Mixpanel in, in front of someone who's who's non-technical, they their eyes kind of glaze over and they're just not interested in, in learning how to use it. Yeah, it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. And I would say, like, broadly, if you're starting an endeavor like this, you're going to have two challenges, right? You're going to have the technical challenges of actually, like, getting the data or getting the data to the place where it needs to be to be analyzed. And you're going to have the cultural challenges, right? Getting people used to thinking about data and interacting with it. And that's very hard. It's a very, very hard problem. After that, shipping that thing and, and getting anybody to ask a question about it, or before getting anybody to ask it, a question about it, you've got to really sort of train people. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean like sitting down with like a you know PowerPoint deck and being like, here's how you, you know, click this thing. It means like really trying to just talk people through like how this thing is relevant to them and then just never giving up. Like <laughs> you just got to always be bringing it up. It's like every time you're in a you know meeting or talking to somebody and they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, what does the data say about that? And how did that change today when you did that email thing that you did or whatever? And trying to like form the linkage in people's minds between, you know, their activity that they're doing as part of their, you know, regular job and the data. Right. And I would say that for Animoto, you know, we did a fair bit of technical work to bring this thing up to speed, just the platform for delivering all the data that we, we wanted. But partly the reason we had to do that was because we, we knew that we were going to have to bring data that was contextually relevant to each person in the company to them. We couldn't say like, hey, you as like, a, I don't know, a product manager or, or you as an engineer, like look at these metrics from the like email report, you know, the email campaign that's going on or whatever. Like that wasn't going to get those folks like invested in using data on a day-to-day basis to shape their decisions, right? So for finance people, obviously we got all the sort of financial stuff in front of them for Product managers, we really wanted to get like, you know, feature usage and user behavior stuff in front of them. For like marketers, we definitely wanted to like get information about ad spend versus, you know, the sort of uh, the funnel, right? We wanted to like be able to think about how we could do, you know, multi-touch kind of analysis for them, but relevant, but tied to our, seg- you know, our user segments and things like that. And we started small in each one of these areas, right? We tried to figure out like, you know, just through a lot of conversation, try to figure out like, again, that what's that one number that is going to be interesting to folks in each one of these different areas, try to find somebody who was really into that, get them to be an evangelist for it and like promote the use of this data in their group. And then just be kind of relentless about, you know, always bringing up, it's just, you kind of become this like annoying guy that's just like, <laughs> oh, well, did you look at that? You know, I happen to know that that, you know, that number changed when you did that thing and you just kind of paying attention and uh, and always pointing it out to people. And people are like, eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they start doing it, right? And I would say also as like the bit of the hack is like, you know, get get the finance people on board. Anybody who does the financial stuff, 
that'll be important because they're going to use that to report the numbers that they have to you know the CEO, and the CEO is going to want to see the numbers in that format after a while. And the CEO will be uh, talking to the like you know whoever's the like head of product and be like, can't you do that in the same way that like the finance guys are doing it? And then that kind of like helps uh, propagate that stuff as well. That's what happened for us as well. So I guess once you are when you're really persistent about this, then people will eventually start seeing. Hey, when I change this email this way, this is the impact it has on the open rate, for example. And if you're the champion and you keep bringing that information to them, then eventually they'll be motivated on their own to start considering what impact, say, maybe the headlines will have on the emails. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. A lot of the work you're going to do is forming the linkage between what these different groups are doing and how a number changes. And it can be hard to form that sometimes, but I think that's really key to making it stick and, and getting people, you know, really engaged in that. So we all want to be agile, um, especially as a startup or someone who wants to remain competitive. I'm trying to wrap my head around what role data plays here, because it feels like on one end, data could speed things up and help you make decisions faster. But on the other end, it could also slow you down and almost paralyze you with so much information. You're kind of staring at this dashboard, unsure of what to do next. Could you kind of talk about the trade-offs there and how you can combat for each one? Well, I think agility is not about like moving fast and never making a mistake. It's about trying something and learning from the results and seeing what changes seeing if that's, you know, a positive outcome or not, trying to understand the reasons for the outcome that you got, and then making adjustments and shipping again, right? Uh-huh. And I think that data can really help you there, especially when you are looking at a, a particularly targeted area. Like if you're saying, okay, how can I get more users to hit the preview button, in our case, after they've, uh, you know, started a project? Well, you want to be able to try some stuff out. Uh, you want to have, you know, some intuition about what they might do, and then see, Right. But if you're not sort of collecting that information, you're obviously not going to be able to do it. You could look at like the downstream number, right? The like revenue number or whatever, but that's so far down that it's going to be very hard to tell like what your change actually did. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there, you, there's, you run the risk of sort of this sort of inf- information overload or analysis paralysis or whatever you want to call it. But I think that, uh, that, y- the speed and quality of your decisions and your ability to like iterate without just sort of blindly trying some new thing is going to be much improved if you can get a handle on looking at the right data given for the problem that you're you're trying to address right then. Are there any things you can do to combat for the paralysis and to help other people on the team to understand the data better? I think it just takes practice. I think a lot of folks aren't used to, I mean, I know a lot of folks aren't, and, you know, I include myself in this, aren't always the best at developing the right framework for looking at data and forming conclusions from it, saying like, oh, well, we did this, and this thing's correlated, so obviously that caused that thing. And saying like, well, no, wait a minute, like, what are the other things that could have happened here? Or this thing happened, we we ran this experiment, something unexpected happened. Well, rather than saying like, oh, that didn't work, rather say, the next question should be, well, like, why did the why did this behavior vary in a way that we didn't expect? But I don't think that's a switch you can flip or like a you know package you can install. I think it really requires like doing it over and over and over again, and ha- having somebody who can always be the skeptic and say like, okay, is that conclusion that we're drawing from that does that make sense? And does that you know are there other questions that we should be doing? Is there another level of why that we should be asking about this, this particular result? 
it's really a discipline. I think we're in a weird spot from an industry perspective. You know, I mean, we've sort of brought this term up uh, a couple of times, but the idea of being data driven. And, you know, I have a problem with that term, actually, because we might have data and we might use it. But fundamentally, it's it's us. It's, it's our teams, our people, our organizations that are that are driving. We have to ask the questions and we have to, you know, do some excavation in that data to try to see if there are answers to our questions. We might find that there aren't. And we have to then ask, well, okay, how do we get the answer? But we're driving the questions. You know, I think that's one battle you have to fight uh, on the culture side of things is, is that right now there's so much talk about being data-driven. It's like people expect these magical answers to come out of the data just all by themselves. <laughs> and it just isn't true. You know, there are some very particular, very well-worn like use cases where you might be able to like have some product that helps that makes that seem true. You know, you forget that there's a whole business that had to come into being to like make that happen. Right. But, you know, as soon as you want to make it very, very relevant to like your particular sort of input variables or, you know, segmentation or whatever, those things kind of break down. So, you know, I think it's, it's worth keeping in mind that we drive it, you know, the data is just there. It's up to us to like make sense of it. If it was easy, well, I don't know. I guess I don't know. A lot of people would be out of jobs if it was easy. <laughs> would data supported be a more accurate term versus data driven? Yeah, I think I've been trying to like say, you know, data oriented or data savvy, experimentally minded, you know, other things like that. But yeah, data driven seems to be, I don't know, puts the cart before the horse, I guess. It, yeah, it's almost a buzzword these days. Yeah. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that even though you have all of these metrics, at the end of the day, you are having a conversation with your team and your customers, which is not as cut and dry as as the data itself. But that's the fact of life that you have to make those imperfect decisions. It, and it's important to keep that stuff in mind, because even when you think that a number is, is telling you something very clear, you know, you always have to sort of question it. For example, like if you you're doing some sort of split test, right? And somebody does something, you know, on one side of the experiment, right? We get, you know, higher conversion, more people are buying, right? You're like, oh, that's great. Unfortunately, let's say you're, if you're a subscription business, you don't know how those people are going to, you know, renew their subscription a month or a year down the line, right? So you kind of always have to be asking, you kind of always have to be a little adversarial with yourself and be like, okay, that's great. I'm glad that that seems to work or you know, at least break even or whatever. But is there something different now about those users? So something is different, right? We've, we've changed something. And so it's not unreasonable to think that a new kind of class of user, a subtly different type of user is now, you know, making it through that conversion wall, right? So what else could that change? How can we get a sense of that in, in, in advance of their, of their, you know, subscription renewal, for example? So it, on the surface, it seems like a very, very clear number. And in one sense it is, but it's not like there aren't other, uh, there won't be other impact from that change. So it's a, that's been a really interesting thing to note as well, that it's not always so clear, even when it is. What are your thoughts on data engineering versus science? What's the difference there? Data science is another term. I'm, tr- I'm, I'm still trying to come to grips with what exactly it means. But I can say that, like, I think data engineering to me is a little bit clearer. Data engineering to me is all about applying sort of engineering rigor to the problem of manipulating data. It's not necessarily, although perhaps, but not necessarily about directly extracting sort of, you know, new information or new correlations or insights or whatever you want to call it from data. 
but I think it's about shipping a platform, products, tools that help to accelerate the data science aspect of it, whatever that happens to mean. So, yeah. you know, it's like getting, making sure the data is in the right form, making sure that it's accurate, you know, at least with respect to where it came from. You know, I mean, there's this sort of thing about, pretty sure somebody has said, it's certainly been true about, uh, you know, back in grad school about sort of like AI and things like that, that like 90% of your time is spent just like getting the data in the like right form so you can actually run the program, you know, you actually want to run. It doesn't sound sexy, but I think data engineering is really about that. And while not sexy, I think it actually, it's the thing that will accelerate all that other stuff and make it possible. You know, the data science and all that stuff is, is expensive. The process, the people, it's, it's hard. So you want to make sure, you want to automate and, you know, make everything as easy as possible up to that point. You know, and don't don't screw around, you know, with all that other stuff if you don't have to. And I think data engineering is really about being the accelerant there. Yeah, we don't use data engineering as much as we should be, but we do have a philosophy of making the right things to do as easy as possible. So, for example, we want to encourage automated testing. So we connect the services together in a way that once you, like, submit your code, the automated testing, whether it passes or not, is right next to the code you submitted. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, you could just say, you could just mandate everybody needs to write automated tests, but there's just a lot more resistance to getting people to adopt, you know, the right way of, of doing things. You did mention something about getting the data in the right format. Could you talk more about that? One of the things that we were noticing a while back was that obviously we had all the data or, well, not all of it, but there was meant much, there was a lot of data that we had. It wasn't usable because each data source was sort of siloed off from each other. And so actually, you know, getting data was difficult or, you know, joining data across these different sources was difficult. So where was the data, for example? You know, we have a sort of a service oriented kind of setup here. And uh, and so we'd have a couple different databases. You know, we had like a my, couple of MySQL instances. We'd have like a Mongo database. We got data from an email vendor. How do you join that data from an email vendor with uh, information in your MySQL database, right? Somebody can't just do that without some engineer being in, in, in the loop, right? And, you know, that was annoying for our engineers, person who's like sort of doing the interstitial stuff between the email vendor and our application. Well, they've got other stuff they could be doing, you know, just a pain. So what kind of question might you have that, you know, requires information from multiple sources? So like if we have our user database that does like auth stuff, subscription information, whatnot, we also want to know, you know, how often do those people use a song from our song library? The song library is often a different database, right? So we could look at, at all their all the projects that they create and, and look up what song they use. And then we have to extract the user information from that's attached to that project information. And then we have to go and like put that somewhere. And then we have to go get the similar set of users in the, from a different database, you know, by user ID or whatever, pull that over uh, and then join it somehow in a, either, a, you know, sort of a secondary database or Excel or something like that. Right. It's messy. Yeah, to say the least. So those things that we that might be the right decision from like a product and you know platform standpoint for for Animoto the product makes doing analysis of data difficult and we were also finding that we would not change things that were the right things to change in the product in the platform because it would interrupt like the way that we'd done analysis we'd already got our bespoke script for gathering all this data and joining it together and if we changed it oh it's all going to be too hard again and that really sucked. So we were like, okay, what we need to do is figure out a way to channel this information to a, a source that 
sort of or into a into a, a repository that that our analysts can use and be relatively it can be a sort of relatively stable or sort of a almost a uniform interface for them and then that allows the application to evolve a little bit more freely and it's not like there's a perfect you know independence there but that's where we're trying to go and and sort of separating these things out is you know not doing reporting sort of directly on the source itself is a big step there how do you reconcile that because on one end you want to architect your app properly and have things decoupled. But on the other end, you do want the data all in one place to analyze it. Right, right. Well, so what, what we did, the approach, and there are other approaches, uh, the, the approach that we took, uh, we now operate in like sort of a, a small batch form where like we, on a periodic basis, we draw information from, you know, all the different sources. We dump that into S3 then S3, we did it from that, we dump it into Redshift. Redshift is a sort of analytical database that uh, is available through Amazon Web Services. And we use another uh, AWS product called Data Pipeline to orchestrate the pulling of data from the different sources. Data Pipeline is really basically glorified cron, but it has some stuff about dependencies and does some retries, things like that, which help with you know, transient failures and things like that. So this is nice. It's it's very straightforward. It's not there's no we didn't have to like wrap our heads around some crazy new like streaming thing or anything like that. Um, it's really straightforward. It's very easy for, for somebody who's sort of new to data engineering to kind of wrap their head around what's going on. Because ultimately what's going on is every once in a while, a little script that you run gets run, pulls data into a CSV file, puts that file in S3, that file in S3 then gets loaded into Redshift. And we've done some things to make deduplication and all that sort of stuff happen for us. Um, but that's, it really is taking hours worth of data. Every hour, take an hour, a few hours worth of data, bring it into Redshift and dump it there. And then essentially what we have is a clone of all our sources on a single, on a logically single instance, you know, database, right? So we have one database to talk to, to do our, do our analysis. Under the covers, it's actually multiple instances, but Nobody needs to know that, and it's nice. It's also nice because Redshift, it's SQL, right? It's um, sort of basically speaks a Postgres SQL uh, dialect, and that means that people who are used to using SQL can jump right in, and a lot of tools use SQL, so they can just interface with that directly. Um, helps us get started really fast, keeps things very simple and straightforward, which is what we what we want. That sounds great. So it, you're keeping, you're consolidating all the data as a separate copy, which allows you to deal with each thing separately, which allows you to deal with the product and deal with analyzing the data separately. Yeah, exactly. And we do some work to try to make it even more decoupled, right? So when schema changes happen at the source, we essentially try to version that so that when the schema change implies that the interpretation of that data will change, we sort of start putting that data into a slightly different place in the data warehouse, into Redshift. By schema, you mean the data format changes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's say some table in one of our MySQL databases, we've changed a column in some way or removed a column in some way, some kinds of additions. That implies that we should be thinking about what that data means in a different way, right? And the idea is that, so we want all the interpretation of the data in the data warehouse to stay as consistent as possible. So if you're looking at some table of users or having doing some sort of derivation of the data in, you know, say our users table to make it simple, 
the interpretation of that data by a script or by a person is going to be, we want to have that be consistent. And then if some something changes about how we're talking about users from the, from the source database, well, we'll probably need to change um, our thinking about it or change the scripts that actually manipulate that data. So we don't want that to happen by chance. We want that to happen in a controlled way. So we're going to try to funnel that data into a new, essentially a new table in the data warehouse so that we can be in control of, of how that happens. We don't want sort of changes to ripple through the system without us sort of knowing about it. And that has a nice benefit is, it, is that it allows us to, the iteration cycles of the application and the, the product teams to be different than the data engineering and the analysis teams, which is really good. Yeah, and the fact that those two goals were in conflict is a testament to how important data must be to you guys. Yeah, we really, we really want it to be accurate, and we want it to be. Um, we don't want there to be any reason. Part of the reason that we're so picky about it is that we don't want there to be any reason why somebody should say, you know, looking at their report uh, in our reporting tool and say like, oh, I can't trust this data. I need somebody to go and. I need to start building up my essentially my own special version of a data repository in my big Excel workbook. As soon as that happens, I feel like we've kind of lost because now their interpretation of information is going to drift from somebody else's. And then the way that they make decisions is sort of going to be in conflict. When we don't want that, we, we want everybody kind of on the, on the same page. But we also don't, <laughs> but it's difficult because we don't want to slow anybody down by doing that. So that's kind of why we're picky about that stuff. So you're saying you pull in data every, say, one or two hours, and obviously that's not real-time, and there is a push on real-time. Do you think that's necessary for making decisions? I think it really depends on your business. For some businesses, right, the data essentially is their product or is the key enabler for their product. So, like, if you're doing, like, some sort of real-time, like, ad trading thing or something like that, like, the data essentially, it's the, that data is, you have to have it, right? And it has, you know, and there's a good argument that like it being faster and your ability to act on that faster is going to differentiate your product from other competitors, right? I think for many businesses, that's that's just not necessarily the case. So I think it's unlikely that you're going to make some sort of like crazy, like strategic decision about, you know, should you be like more mobile first than web based on like real time data, right? <laughs> it's probably not going to be the case that you're going to change that decision on a minute to minute basis. For us, we'd rather focus on spending more time uh, investing in educating our, our internal users, the stakeholders of our business, to um, really understanding the business and the, 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 those numbers than, than improving the, the timeliness uh, of the data for its own sake. Now, that's not to say that like there are some other reasons why it's possible, uh, again, depending on the context, that sort of a more real-time or streaming kind of architecture might be good. But I think those are probably driven from a different set of motivations for that other than the timeliness of, of decision-making. I think it, some of those architectures could maybe make your data pipeline a little bit more uniform for different kinds of data. Right now, we're sort of seeing a little bit of a, of a chafe when we're talking about sort of our transactional data versus event data that's coming out of like the front end of our application. So those, that streaming stuff could help sort of simplify at some level, at least in terms of making it more consistent about the pipeline, our data pipeline. But that's a sort of orthogonal concern to, you know, how important it is that we get data right away. Okay, okay. That makes sense. I'd also be curious to hear a kind of a day in the life of how, something happens at Animoto from looking at the data to eventually 
making a product decision? You know, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see if I can think of a good example. You could make it up completely. It's just, um, just to give us a sense of how a process like this might work with the setup that you have. Okay, so one example of how we might use some of this data on a daily basis to make a product decision would be, we maybe we want to know how users are using, let's say, our logo feature. And so we might look at, you know, how many users are discovering that feature. When they do discover it, do they turn it on? Do they then succeed at making a preview of the video and seeing the result? If they did that, do they then go back and turn it off? Do they often use that feature with another feature? Like, are logos always used with some other feature that's oriented, like, oriented to businesses, like setting a particular call to action on their, on their player? We might look at those, those behaviors together and then decide, oh, well, maybe there's a, maybe there's some sort of workflow that we can, we can implement that will streamline that stuff, right? So, uh, we look at that data and we say, oh, okay, like, looks like these features are really used together. Let's implement something that will make whoever's using those features life a little bit easier. We know that getting done fast is, is really important for some, some users. So we'll implement a, a little streamlined workflow for that. So then we'll go and mock that up, design that, do a little bit of sort of paper prototyping, user testing kind of stuff. And then ultimately we might say, okay, let's, uh, let's put this in front of users in production. So then we'll figure out some sort of categorization for users, some way to sort of decide like who should be exposed to this, this new feature. Uh, then we might use something like Optimizely to um, control access or, you know, to open up access to, to that feature. Could you explain what that does, Optimizely? Sure. Optimizely is um, A-B testing or split testing service, and it allows you to bucket users into different categories, or, or rather Optimizely will bucket them for you according to certain rules that you can, you can specify or, or, you know, certain proportions that will be exposed to the experiment and then how many of those who are even exposed to the experiment will be uh, partaking in, you know, variation A versus variation B. And then it will gather um, some results for you about like, oh, did they convert, whatever that means in this context, more in variation A or in variation B. So we often use Optimizely to, you know, expose a feature to one set of users uh, and then not to another set of users and then compare outcomes. Like, did population A create more videos than population B, for example? So we'll do that, and we'll try to observe the results. And then based on the output of that, we'll, you know, dial it up to more users. We'll turn it off, go back, look at some of the more granular data, try to understand why things worked the way they did or not. Then either we'll continue on that, on you know, using that product or using... We'll continue uh, to iterate on that that feature, or we might decide, oh, our assumptions about this were wrong. Let's go back to the drawing board, try something else. So you are starting with assumptions, right? And you make sure you ensure that you have some period at the end when you check whether or not those assumptions were correct. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's, I guess that's partly why it's like, don't, it's not necessarily like data driven, right? You're, you're, you might look at a data, at some data, and say, oh, that makes me think of this. I have this hypothesis, and then you can either verify that hypothesis using data that you have, or you ship something to get more data, either a feature or different instrumentation or whatever. And then you try to use that to verify your hypothesis, right? So yeah, that hypothesis is, uh, ideally, there's only one, one thing varying there. Um, oftentimes, there's many assumptions, and you just try to control for as many as possible. Okay. And what's your stance on split testing? When is it useful and when is it not useful? It's broadly really useful. I think it's 
it's great to be able to run experiments and again test your assumptions right like every everything you ship is a guess and it's nice to sort of if you can construct it such that it's possible that it won't work then you can verify that and and help hone your thinking about stuff um, hopefully that will help build your intuition a little bit and help you make better decisions going forward it's not without its cost and you have to do it carefully you know obviously you you ship something and expose half of your users to it, let's say, and then they all stop buying something, well, that, that just costs you a lot of money. So you, you want to be a little bit careful about how you do it. And it's also important to interpret the results uh, carefully as well, right? Things like Optimizely and a lot of tools sort of have these sort of, you, you sort of reach statistical significance and they have this like, you know, line that you hit and you're like, oh, great, we've collected enough data. You can now say this one was the winner. This, you know, variation A was the winner over variation B. But you got to be a little bit careful there. We know that from our, our experience that, you know, uh, the same users that are using the product on Tuesday are not really the same population of users that are using it on Sunday, right? Those are different kinds of users. And if you ran your experiment for one day of the week and it reached statistical significance, you're like, that's great. You turn it on for everybody. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, you look at the results and you're like, well, wait, now we're losing with respect to what we had before. Why is that? You just have to be very careful that you understand your population of users, the cycle, the business cycle, you know, like weekdays and weekends are different from the time somebody signs up to when they buy or convert or whatever might be different. So you have to make sure you're at least running long enough so that, you know, people that get into that experiment have enough time to sort of marinate a little bit, things like that. And it, I think it can be a little bit of, a, you know, you just have to build up a little bit of, of knowledge about how your user operates your users operate in with respect to your your particular business. But I think it's a powerful tool. I mean, I think split testing is great. A process around doing it can sort of help be that skeptic that I was talking about earlier, being like, are you sure you know what you think you know? Are you, are you sure that you're not just shipping something that you like versus what's ultimately going to work well for the users? All right. Well, thank you so much, Lincoln, for joining us today. Where can we keep up with you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm Lincoln Ritter at, uh, on Twitter. And of course, Animoto, the, well, we're trying to post more regularly. We have a tech blog, tech.animoto.com. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, try out Animoto. There's a free trial. It's, it's great. It makes you look awesome if you ever want to make a video. And, uh, and we're, we're hiring for, uh, all sorts of positions, platform engineers, front end data engineer. So check out our careers page, animoto.com slash careers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.